0: This is episode 140 with Lane Beachley. G'day, legends, and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on your impactful journey. (laughs) Oh yeah, strap in for an absolute pearler of an episode with this one. Lane Beachley is widely regarded as the most successful female surfer in history, the only surfer, male or female, to claim six consecutive world titles. So that was from 1998 to 2003. Lane then went on to win a seventh world title in 2006 before retiring from the ASP World Tour in 2008. On Australia Day in 2015, Lane was awarded with an officer of the Order of Australia for her distinguished service to the community through support for a wide range of charitable organisations as a mentor for women in sport and as a world champion surfer. Lane achieved yet another first in Australian sport by becoming Surfing Australia's new chairperson in the latter part of 2015. She's the first former female world champion of any sport to take on the role as a chair in a national sporting organisation. Lane is also the proud founder and director of her own charity, the Lane Beachley Foundation. Aim for the stars, it's called. Empowering and enabling young girls and women to invest in their future, fulfill their potential and to put back into the community that supported them on their journey. Lane is one of Australia's most trusted and respected brands. As a highly sought after speaker lane shares her model for sustainable success providing life-changing tips and tools to turn ideas and intentions into actions empowering people to become the champion of their life her exploits exploits are astounding her attitude unwavering and her achievements inspirational this episode with Lane was recorded a couple of months ago and a week after the recording I actually got to meet up with Lane at the Surfing High Performance Centre and also hear her deliver a very entertaining and insightful presentation to a group of female surf coaches. She was bloody hilarious and brilliant. When Lane was still surfing professionally, she had a bit of a reputation of a stubborn, arrogant bitch (laughs) she even talks about this in this episode but what i love about lane and her journey is the paradigm shift that she's experienced and how she's turned that stubborn arrogance and operating from fear into a place of deep connected fulfilled loving experiences of life she's found that balance between her inner warrior and her inner buddha in this chat, you'll hear Lane discussing the power and importance of breath work and how it's significantly changed her life. As you guys know, I'm a breathing coach and I bring it into most of my workshops and all of my coaching. There's so many different types of breathing and if you're wondering how breath training can help you and your loved ones in everyday life, just want you to listen to this one small example. This is some feedback I received from a at a workshop that I ran with some leaders and managers a few months ago. He says, Hi Brett, often you come across a new technique or information in life and you randomly use that information haphazardly or for a brief period of time and then it lapses. However, I just wanted to reach out and let you know that I'm still using your breathing techniques on a daily basis following your session. Your enthusiasm to provide a variation on something that we do every second of every day was really an eye opener for me which I've subsequently passed on to my family and close friends. My daughter has predominantly been a mouth breather due to adenoids issues when she was a child and following your session I've passed on your techniques to her. This was not only this has not only improved the quality of her breathing but also helped her to prepare for major meetings and life's obstacles with a much clearer mind and body. Claudia also has asthma and this year with improved breathing, her allergies have been greatly reduced. I'm very I'm very busy with a consultancy business, contracted work at the mines and a part owner of a building company and I use the specific deep breathing techniques every day to relax my mind and body following a busy day and to prepare for sleep. Thanks for your very enjoyable and totally interesting story, and I would continue to follow your journey on your podcast, which is making an impact on my family and I. I totally recommend your sessions to anyone looking to improve their quality of life and to be inspired by a remarkable Australian. That's from Dave. Boom! Thanks, Dave, you bloody legend. (laughs) I love this. This is just one small example of the ripple effect that one person learning helpful and healthy habits and tools and techniques can have across the entire family if you're keen to learn more about what dave has experienced then check out my programs and coaching opportunities online at yourlifeofimpact.com and actually in the gut health program that i often speak about that functional medicine practitioner carl Hewen and i are running we also cover many different breathing techniques to help improve many areas of your health and well-being so you can check out all that info at yourlifeofimpact.com forward slash gut health okay now let's hear from the legend herself lane beachley so, Lane, I'd love to kick it off talking about our fundamental operating context and I'd love to hear you discuss your perception and your experience of operating from and competing from a place of love and a place of fear.
1: Right. All right. Let's just deep dive into this stuff. <laughs> <Absolutely>. So, <laughs> Thanks for having me, Brett. It's, um, it's an interesting concept of talking to people about performance through love versus fear and majority of people subconsciously or unconsciously tend to operate through fear and uh I'm a testament to success through fear because I won six well actually of the six consecutive world titles that I won five of them so number 2 to 6 were won in a state of fear World titles number one and world titles number seven were both won and achieved through a state of love. And what that looks like and how that feels is the way I explain it through fear is at all costs. So you will walk over broken glass, you will bleed, you will push people away, you will will be extremely fierce driven focused and i'm not saying that's a bad thing but i'm saying if it's at the cost of the quality of your health and well-being the cost of the quality of your relationships the cost of the relationships with your peers and your friends and family then something's got to give
0: and were those titles of two to six when you did win them out of fear were they at the cost of those things that you just listed
1: 100 percent. yes So, basically, world title number one, which I'd been on tour for seven years by this stage, so I I, I wasn't unfamiliar with what what it takes to to be the best in the world, just I hadn't quite got there yet. And world title number one, I fell in love with a man called Ken Bradshaw. So that translated to me falling in love with surfing, falling in love with performance, falling in love with learning, fall in love with challenging myself. And even though I had a very distinct outcome that was very clearly defined, it was the self-belief completed or, or um, matched with the processes that fueled that belief that enabled me to win so effortlessly. And when I started, after I won my first world title, world title number two, I all of a sudden had these unrealistic lofty expectations of myself, such as I have to be twice as good this year to earn the right to stay here where I'm at. Most people get to number one and think, well, that's it. There's nowhere else to go. Whereas I saw number one as a stepping stone to them winning again and again and again. You know, you, I think the Eagles are a classic example of how they achieved monumental success with Hotel California and defined themselves by that and then gave up because they thought they could never write anything better than it. And that was that's where things started to dissolve. So it cost me... Uh, so I just think about the injuries that I endured in the years, world titles number two to six, and they were monumental. They were pretty ridiculous, actually. You know, year one, world title number two, I tore my medial ligament and they told me to stay out of the water for six weeks. So I stayed out for 10 days. Uh, at the end of the year, I crushed my lumbar spine surfing in the final event of the year at Sunset Beach, crushed L2 and L3 and paddled back out 30 minutes later and won the contest. And, had already won the world title Uh, year four I had I won Chopu and ended up with a wave crashing on the back of my neck herniating a disc seven 80 percent of my spinal cord and I just surfed with that for the next five years just ignored the pain as much as I possibly could but just dealt with it and so basically I was tagged by the end of winning my six world titles as having the compassion of a tiger shark and that's because I saw everyone as on the way and in the way And I also um, projected my expectations and fears onto them. And because I had such a fear of rejection, I behaved in a way that gave my peers reason to reject me or I rejected them first.
0: Do you... So you talk there about just this dead set belief of being the best Mm -hmm. and you operated from that place of fear, but you channeled it into belief and that's what won you those world titles. Would you... Would you have gained the six world titles or the five in that period if a coach came along earlier and tried to shift you into that love base instead of fear base at that time?
1: I don't know. All, I've, all I can say is having won my seventh one in a love-based state, I have no doubt that it's the way to do it. And, and I look for evidence that it can be achieved effortlessly in a state of joy, grace, ease and gratitude. And that's Stephanie Gilmore. Her first four world titles were won absolutely effortlessly. She had complete belief in her ability. She never questioned herself, she never doubted herself, she never compared herself, you know, the things that we do that dissolve our sense of self-worth and, and sabotage our future success. She she just rode the wave of success and and consistently learned and surrounded herself with good people. And so it's our minds that get in our own way. And so I'm often asked, "Do you think you would have?" You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a, am uh, a, I'm a person that really dislikes the term "woulda, shoulda, coulda." Mm. You know, "would you could have, should have." I just think, you know, that's, it's, uh, it's hearsay, and high, we all have 2020 hindsight. Um, but to answer the question, I believe that had I had the right frame of mind and the right support around me, it may have been easier.
0: Well, I guess too, at the time of our life, it's in alignment with the fact that what you're ready for, right? So a lot of the time people won't change and apparently (laughs) what we see is that people might not necessarily change and they don't have that readiness so often, so this isn't always the case, but most often, mm. it's often forced upon people through they have to make the change through illness, loss of a loved one, major injuries, major life adversity. You, it sounds like you went through all of that. All uh, sorry, not all of that. A lot of those things before, Mostly, yeah. You know, before you were actually. Uh, before you made the decision. So I'm really intrigued to hear what, what was the final catalyst? What made you make that shift and do the deeper work? And then do you believe that we need to, as humans, do we need to experience the pain to make the big shifts in our life? Is that just a perception or a personal experience?
1: I asked a question, I was speaking in an event recently and I asked a question, who here believes success has to be hard? And 99% of the room raised their hand. Well, actually, no, 90% of the room raised their hand. Mm. So in Australia, for example, I believe we're deeply invested in struggle. And I wonder where that stems from. I wonder where that emanates from. Is it, does it come from the fact that our parents had to work really hard to earn the right to live the lives that we're now benefiting from? Or did it come from the fact that our school teachers told us you must work hard to earn your grades? Or was it when we joined um, the employment field that we're told that we can't actually move up until we pay our dues and earn our stripes and, you know, show prove something to the world that we're deserving of it? I wonder where this working hard belief comes from. Like I'm, I'm all about working hard, I'm not all about hard work. And uh, it's a matter of finding the, the right balance. You know, working hard means you, sometimes you've got to do things you don't want to do. Uh, sometimes you've got to, you know, you, you've got to show up in, in a time when you're not really feeling like it. and uh, And sometimes things aren't going your way or you know, things go against the plan and you've got to adapt to it. And sometimes that can be a little bit challenging. But being invested in struggle and being invested in fear just becomes this default setting that we've all learned. And I I wonder if it's part of the negativity bias that we've all inherited from our ancestors around survival. I don't don't know what, what drives it in everybody else, but for me, I had decided that the only way that I was going to be deserving of love was to become the best in the world at something and because it stemmed from a mentality of lack and a mentality of fear, that's what drove the behaviour. And I wasn't even aware of it until I got to my 6 world title and then someone asked me, do you think, you know, are you enough yet? Mm. <laughs> um, and do you think it's, you're driving, you know, you've been that fierce because you're adopted? And that resonated with me so strongly. I went, yeah, that's actually what it is. <laughs> I can't explain it better than that. Yep.
0: <laughs> so you use that as a reason to, to prove yourself?
1: Yes. Absolutely.
0: To feel I actually, worthy? It was
1: it was the catalyst. In my sense of self-worth was wrapped up in my success. And if I didn't achieve it, then I was not going to be deserving of love. And therefore, I would just continue to behave in a way that would keep everybody at an arm's distance.
0: So then what was it that shifted it before that final world title, That, that the processes that you went through?
1: My body broke down. My relationships had broken down, and um, my health and well-being broke down. My peers resented me. I mean, nothing was really. There was very little joy <laughs> in in the achievements, and it's funny, you know, when you wake up. One day, and, and I've always said that dissatisfaction is a precursor to positive change because there's been plenty of times throughout my career when I've got really dissatisfied and I realise, okay, first I need to take responsibility for the fact that I'm in this state, and then next I need to identify what is it that I'm going to do to get out of it and where do I want to get to? And when I had chronic fatigue, when I had depression, when I suffered from injuries, when I was going through heartbreak, when I was dealing with devastating losses, to answer your question, original question do we have to go through that to instigate the change well if we believe success has to be hard we'll go through it irrespective of whether we want to or not because that's the belief and our and our processes will match our beliefs not our outcomes so yeah we end up just being the the architects of of our lives through that that through that narrative
0: Talk to me a little bit about that. I want to hear you elaborate on that, that that the outcomes are a process from the beliefs, that comes from the beliefs, sorry, not the outcomes.
1: Yeah, so this is something that I've learned from uh, listening to James Clear. I don't know if you've read a book called Atomic Habits, but he. have you read that book?
0: No, I'm writing that one down.
1: Tell okay, me. so he, he remanufactured the golden circle that Simon Sinek presented in Start With Why. Uh-huh. And so we start with why Simon has the golden circle with why in the center because most of us have the why on the outside. But he says, if you start with why people buy why you do stuff, not what you do. Mm -hmm. And so what James did with the golden circle is that he put outcomes on the outer circle, which if majority of us are outcome driven. And so then we set up these processes that essentially get us closer to achieving that outcome. However, if the identity, which sits in the middle, doesn't match the process, then the roller coaster ride you'll go through to achieve the outcome will be extremely severe. So some days you'll you'll achieve it, some days you won't. And what that looks like, for example, is if the outcome is I want to lose 20 kilos, what do I have to do to achieve that? Well, I need to go on a diet, I need to start exercising. However, the identity or the belief piece, you may stand in front of the mirror and say, I'm fat and I'm lazy. So if that's the belief, that's your identity. How on earth are you going to get up off the couch and go to the gym and follow a diet to achieve an outcome that is so far away from your belief pattern that all you're going to end up doing is sabotaging yourself? Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. It's that the identity and philosophy and really knowing and owning who you are, really deeply knowing who you are before you have to go through the processes of what you need to do to get to the outcome.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. And I can I shortcut that with my, the workshops that I deliver by just asking people, make a declaration, tell me what your outcome is that you want to achieve and then I want to hear what the thought is that follows that. What's your yeah but? Because your yeah, but becomes your identity because that's what the belief is.
0: So they become our limiting beliefs. Yes. And most of our actions that we do in life, whether we're aware of it or not, and whether we hear that in a dialogue in that conversation, they come from our belief system. So we're operating subconsciously um, and operating in alignment with our belief systems, whether we know it or not.
1: Exactly. Well, if you want to know what you want to, if you want to know what you believe, just have a look at your life. Mm -hmm. life doesn't lie. So I believed in myself in 1998 wholeheartedly. And that's why it was effortless. Then in 1999, after I won my first world title in 1999, I came back not to win another one. I came back with the mentality that I had to defend it. Mm. That alone caused immense amount of stress and pressure and expectation and placed unrealistic amounts of pressure on my shoulders that I continued to crumble under until I realized this was what I'd chosen to believe.
0: How would you coach this approach with athletes today? How, how or, or do you do it or how would you do it in terms of your understanding? Like you said, Steph's a prime example, but you obviously mm. see a lot of athletes and I'm not just talking about in surfing. You, Yes, a, a lot of connection with a lot of world class athletes and there's obviously mm. a lot of potential world class athletes but how do you coach them to operate from this place of good enough and this place of love and still be world's best as opposed to the pace of fear and not good enough and and charging through life like a loose bull <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well, it starts with where you are. It starts with acknowledging what's working. And are you where, exactly where you wanted to be? And if not, then what's stopping you from getting there? The thing that I find with a lot of athletes, uh, especially several that I've worked with over the years, is the majority of them actually have a fear of success, more so than a fear of failure. And that's, when I, that's a much harder thing to identify and then rectify. But once you recognize the fact that you have a fear of success, then you've just got to understand what's the cost of success to you? It's why a lot of kids these days, you know. I have a lot of parents that ask me, "My, you know, I've got two kids. One of them's really driven and focused like me, and another one is just super lazy and just won't get off her butt, and she won't apply herself. and Can you help me?" And I said, "Well, what does she value?" Because if she values love and affection and she sees you on the road away from her all the time because of how hard you're working and then when you come home, you're depleted and exhausted and too tired to give her your unconditional attention and love, then there's no way she's going to want to work. Powerful. So you've got to have the courage and this is, I didn't answer another part of your question just before. What changed in me is I had to have the courage to look in the mirror. And I looked in the mirror and didn't like what I saw.
0: What about what you felt?
1: Well, that's what was driving it. So we distract ourselves from how we feel. We're constantly busy. We're constantly running away. We're constantly filling our time with distractions, with... Distracting ourselves from actually feeling the way we feel because we don't want to know how we feel because we're scared most of the time. So I was scared. I was exhausted, depleted, broken, emotionally exhausted, physically drained, mentally um, mentally broken, adrenal fatigue, and, and then my, I, I continued to push. <laughs> and then ultimately it's my body that talks to me and uh, the body whispers before it screams and had been screaming for about five years and I didn't listen and then it shut down and so then I realized I had to do something about it if I still wanted to surf and compete
0: and that was when you experienced chronic fatigue was it?
1: No, that's when I had adrenal fatigue. <laughs> okay. I had chronic fatigue um, in 90, 1993 and then again in ninety five ninety six. Mm-hmm. So they were the years before I won my first world title. I had chronic fatigue. And then after I won my sixth world title, I had adrenal fatigue and then I came back to compete and then I blew out my medial, my meniscus, and then I continued to push through that and then came back the next year and that's when my neck seized up. And I went and sourced some guidance on how to address that and uh, was given two pieces of advice retire or get surgery. Neither of those appealed to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I sought a third person to get counsel from. And he said, You're young enough and fit enough to allow your body to heal itself. So that's entirely up to you. But I, I was certainly not into getting my neck, th- my throat cut to heal this injury but it was a pretty severe one it was you know from 2001 while I was competing in Chopu where the wave landed on the back of my neck my left arm went numb it stayed that way for five years and I just ignored it so sooner or later the body will let you know that it it won't endure anymore and you can either listen to it or you can push past it and then by that stage who knows what's going to happen what are the consequences of that
0: Well, you obviously believed that person, that third opinion, that you were young enough, strong enough to to heal your body yourself. So what did that process look like? You didn't do any medical intervention? No. How did you heal your body yourself through that way?
1: That's where the work came in. That's where all the self-worth, that's where all the reflection, the breath work, the... I did a lot of emotional healing, a lot of emotional processing and a lot of emotional healing. And I'm still doing that. I'm still processing. I still do rebirthing, you know, probably once a a month. And a rebirthing is basically a a connected cyclical breath. It goes in and out of your mouth and it oxygenates the body to transfer and transmute uh, emotional energy out of the body because our body physically distracts us from dealing with emotional pain. So if you've ever read any of Louise Hay's work out of such as You Can Heal Your Life, she will talk about how different parts of our body represent different emotions. Our knees represent ego. Our shoulders represent carrying the weight of the world. Our neck is a fear of looking in the past. Our hips are a fear of moving forward. Our ankles are a fear of changing direction. And so people go, a lot of load of shit. You know, I just happened to fall over and hurt myself. I was like, well, were you showing off? Well, no wonder you did your knee. <laughs> and uh, it can be a little bit confronting, but that's what I believe. So I started studying. I started listening to my body. I started surrounding myself with experts and I literally explored every form of therapy, physical therapy, you can possibly explore. I did biosync therapy, which is the emotional work as well as the physical work. I did hyperbaric chambers, uh, sauna key treatments, magnetic therapy, uh, chiropractor, meditation, yoga. I went on a very strict diet. I eliminated anything inflammatory out of my diet. No dairy, no yeast, no wheat, no fruit, no sugar, no red meat, no alcohol. I mean, I dedicated myself the same way I would dedicate myself to winning a world title. I dedicated that commitment to healing my body without a deadline.
0: So without the deadline, took the pressure off and allowed you to open that liminal space and really uh, for it all to sink in. There's so many things that I want to, to chat to you about. The breath work that you mentioned, is that the yeah. the cyclical rebirthing breath work? So when you mentioned yes. breath work before, that's the one that you continuously do. Yes. Is that, have you seen Dr. Joe Dispenza's work that he does? Yes. Yeah. Is that similar to his breathing methods?
1: I haven't. I haven't done – I haven't actually – seen his breathing methods i've seen a lot of his work but i haven't seen is it what does he can you explain what his Yeah, breathing methods very
0: similar are. one that you're talking about with the cyclical and the um, connected the, the clearing and the connection aspect and he talks about the relationship to the spinal fluid so there's a oh, method yes. to draw it all down and um, using obviously diaphragm drawing it down deep doing uh, a certain cyclical when the, the air's down deep and then we draw it back up and it moves spinal fluid up and it stimulates pineal glands and has a really significant um, neurochemical cha- change in the brain and a, and a release mm. there. I'll send you the link. Mm. There's a really cool
1: YouTube clip. Yeah, I'd like to watch it. This yeah. one, it's it's not so conscious. It's basically the only thing you need to be conscious of is your breath. And the minute you lose consciousness, it's because you've gone into the mind. Mm. So, uh, and what happens is the body will go into tetany. So your hands will get all <laughs> kind of weird and your body will get all tense and you'll feel fear and you'll feel all sorts of these things come up and your body will create tension wherever you're holding it. And the only thing you can get through it is by staying with the breath. Mm. You don't
0: want to do it. So similar to the shamanic breath work, have you done any of no. that? No, so I think it, it's similar response anyway that of what mm. you were talking about there. That's what I've experienced when I've done the shamanic breath work and as you would know that any of the breathing like you said to focus on the breath is to get out of the head so anything any time that we can calm the mind through mm. breath is is not us focusing on what's happened in the past and wasting our energy there and or mm. worrying about what's going to happen in the future just fully being present a lot exactly. of the breathwork training that I've done with the heartmath institute and the coherence breathing and those guys have decades of research of hormonal testing blood flow everything uh brainwave frequency and they're the guys that have teamed up with dr joe dispenza too to, to, to do a lot of the lab testing on his breath work it's so fascinating mm. so powerful it
1: really is i mean if you think about it it's the it's the current of our life it mm-hmm. connects it connects the body and the, and the mind and and we take it for granted and it's the one thing that actually calms everything it activates the the relaxation response instantly. All we have to do is actually take a deep breath, a conscious deep breath and relax and release it consciously. It's pretty simple.
0: It's very simple. We
1: overcomplicate it though, don't
0: we? <laughs> I've got a seven-month-old baby, and yes. I, I watch him breathe and just notice right from the first day, straight down into the diaphragm, does very efficient breathing. And mm. I just I'm very conscious of watching him breathe all the time. And I, I'm gonna <laughs> note the time in his life when he stops doing that because we obviously are born breathing efficiently and correctly, deep, deep diaphragm breathing instead of the shallow chest breathing. So I'm really intrigued to know when that timeline is of when we start.
1: Yes. To- <laughs> and that's when <laughs> I'll start
0: doing breath work with him.
1: <laughs> Just don't let him know that he's become a scientific study.
0: That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Even in speaking of kids, the, the work that I do in schools, we teach breathing as one of the fundamental pillars because right. we know that you know, the, the motto of um, at Calm Mind Co. is calm mind, happy heart or calm mind, mm. resilient heart for the older kids. And the, the calming the mind through the breath, through the, what we call big belly breathing to simplify it for the kids, you know, it helps them. That's their focus point. And I always say that if there's one skill that every human being should hone in on and practice every day, it's a skill of focus. Focus on what? Focus on what's important in that moment. And when we teach the kids to focus on the breath, you know, it brings them away from distraction. It prevents them from anger and bullying and making poor decisions. It's, mm. it's super empowering to see how the kids can take it on board, let alone, as you know, working with elite athletes or for, for you and I who aren't elite athletes but just wanting to enjoy and get the most out of life.
1: Yes. Pretty simple. <laughs> <laughs> just breathe
0: consciously how often do you do that cyclical breathing
1: oh once a month okay unless of course i'm going through some really serious stuff or i've i've been through some traumatic stuff and i haven't let go of it then i'll dive in Mm. just so i can let go since we're all onions
0: you mentioned there before about the link to the body and and the emotions being held in the body one of the processes we do is the triple C. So calm the mind, clear the heart, connect to the body. What's been your experience through emotional healing from, from doing these processes? Has it been something that has almost been cathartic where it's brought up these emotions that have just been stored deeply, or has it just been a pure cleansing and clarity journey for you?
1: All of the above depends on the timing. The first one is incredibly cathartic because it, it's can be pretty confronting. A lot of your deep seated fears will come to the surface quite quickly. And uh, then you've got to confront them or you can uh, pretend that that never happened and never go back. And I remember I still to this day can clearly vividly remember my first rebirthing session because I ended up bawling my eyes out for about 45 minutes afterwards. Mm. It was uh, yeah, it was full on. So and now these days it's a lot more of a, just a cleansing, but it all, like I said, sometimes it d- depends on where I'm at in my life. I, I did one uh, cause I, I do it with some friends and they've got a, a um, block of land out in Kangaroo Valley. And after the breath, I still didn't feel cleansed enough. So then I needed to go deeper into doing more work. And um, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a real reflective, introspective kind of person. I, I solely am focused on how I'm feeling. And most of us don't understand that our thoughts determine our, our emotions. So like you say, if you can clear the mind, then you will calm the heart. Because when you clear the mind and take a deep breath, basically it's your heart saying to your mind, okay, everything's under control. It's all okay everything's going to be okay which is uh, a really valuable tool to learn at any age Now, I still remember learning how to meditate in high school actually someone came and educated educated us on that when I was doing my HSC back in 1989.
0: Wow what was what was it like back then when people were talking about meditation was it a pretty hippie woo woo concept?
1: Yes, but I've always had a very open mind. So, you know, some kids like, what a waste of time and obviously didn't even entertain the idea and some of us embraced it and gave it a crack and and it was a body scan, mm. something that I still enjoy doing.
0: What's your, what are your must-do daily regular rituals? So I say daily slash regular because, you know, obviously sometimes we would love to do everything daily but it, life gets in the way but what are your regular rituals that you you keep in your life to keep you in alignment
1: so I, when i open my eyes before when i wake up in the morning and before my well the minute my my eyes wake up open my day starts and my mind starts racing and because congratulations I'm, you're human Thank you you very much. And also the morning is my creative time. That's when I'm most on. I'm a morning person. You get me after two o'clock, you're not going to get too much creativity out of me. So it's a matter of doing the things that I really need to do first thing in the morning and, or actually getting out of, getting out of my inbox and investing in the time to do creative things. Anyway. I th- My must-dos, uh, a breathing exercise, normally uh, it varies depending on how anxious I am, but it'll either be a box breath or um, a two-times breath or even just a quick little NLP technique just to silence the chatter and What's calm that like? my heart.
0: What's uh, the
1: NLP technique? NLP technique? I was, yeah. one, of the, when, one I learnt when I was competing for my sixth world title where – I had to shut my brain up because it was just the minute I found myself in in a position where I was losing, it would just go straight into negative dialogue. And so it was interesting, actually, I digress, but I was watching uh, a Mel Robbins clip recently mm-hmm. and she was saying that when she goes into negative dialogue and she becomes aware of it, she just counts back from five to one. Mm-hmm. She goes five, four, three, two, one. And it just prevents her from lashing out and reacting and yeah, and being uh, emotional or rational. Yeah, the five-second really rule. Powerful. Where, yeah, it's really powerful. Mm-hmm. And I, with this NLP it's basically you sit up in the, you sit up straight, you pull your belly button into your spine, you place your tongue behind the back of your front teeth, your top teeth, you take a deep breath in through your nose and right as you get to the top of the breath, you hold it, you scream the word stop and then you exhale through your nose again mm-hmm. and it actually silences your mind. It takes that, a couple
0: of seconds. Do you, do you scream the stop out loud? Is this something no. you could do on, on a plane or something like that? No, I, scream,
1: I scream stop in my head. Okay. And then I go into my morning mantra or my daily mantra and it ends. So I have this whole long dissertation that I repeat and then it ends with my my final mantra, which is I am happy, I am healthy, I am fit and I am strong. And then I start my day and I always start my day with a really big glass of water to rehydrate my brain and my body.
0: Beautiful. Do you ever add and then apple ideally, cider to the water?
1: I go surfing. Sorry?
0: Do you ever have, add apple cider vinegar to the water?
1: I fail dismally in that respect, but I do have it and I just forget to put it in there. So <laughs> are you suggesting that's a good thing to do?
0: I'm suggesting that's a very good thing to do, yes. I do a lot of work with Gut Health and the Gut-Brain Connection and run some programs yes. in that and that's a, a powerful little easy, easy tip to help, uh, to help feed the good microbiome and kickstart your day off really well.
1: How much do I put in my water?
0: You can start with a capful, or or, you know, a little bit less than a tablespoon full.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. And then work up to what?
0: I have a couple of tablespoons full. I'm not sure what the limit is. I wouldn't recommend people <laughs> to sort of have a cup full of apple cider vinegar.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm not Do sure you, that we need to overdose on it.
1: Is it, uh, is it when you dilute it in water, does it affect its response to your affect,
0: body? Not, not that we've seen the research on. So if you can shot it, it's, it's definitely sometimes I'll just swig it out of the bottle or pour it straight onto the spoon, absolutely. Or most, 90% of the day, I have it with half a lemon in the water as well for a hydrational perspective and to help uh, balance the alkalinity and acidity balance in the body. So the lemon helps with that. And then the apple cider vinegar is because it's a fermented product, it helps with the good microbiome in our gut to help shift our our balance there more into symbiosis instead of dysbiosis. So that in with everything else that you're already doing, good little booster.
1: <laughs> right. I will apply that tomorrow morning.
0: But I, know, I wanted to actually mention that bring it up before when you said that you made a massive shift in your diet to help get you through everything and all mm. of those pro-inflammatory foods that you, you helped take away, that obviously helped you physically and mentally. Is that a practice, an alignment? I don't like to say diet, a belief, an alignment, a practice that you still continue?
1: Yes. Not as, I'm not as disciplined as I once was. However, my husband and I do do intermittent fasting. We do two days a week. Where we have a calorie-controlled intake of food and and stay away from carbs and sugar and dairy and red meat. Uh, I haven't eaten red meat for over thirty years, so but it's good to keep him off it. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's been very beneficial to our health and well-being because my husband's sixty-one, so his blood test results just continue to get better and better as he. Continues on with it and fasting, but I've I've been off dairy, gluten, yeast, mushrooms, and red meat since about 1997. Mm-hmm. And uh, dairy creeps back into my diet occasionally here and there, but um, yeah, I'm pretty disciplined with those certain parameters, and I tend to stay away from a lot of a lot of um, acidic style of foods, such as the capsicums, the eggplants, the oranges. Um, I don't eat, don't eat rock melon or honeydew melon because there's yeast in those. So I'm pretty – I'm really good with my diet and I prioritize it because it's the one thing that obviously affects my health and well-being and it's uh, very easy to know when you're out of balance. Start yeah, you obviously
0: gut. know yourself well. That's really uh, you know, a process like with anything is to learn that, learn what works for you, what doesn't, how to eliminate it. And, mm. and understanding of why. how What's your fasting window look like when you do the days?
1: So I do Mondays and Thursdays predominantly because we, weekends can be quite indulgent, so I tend to <laughs> need a detox come really? Monday. And uh, so what it looks like is I do a protein smoothie in the morning around about 9 o'clock, and then I'll eat dinner at about 6 o'clock. And fortunately, I, you know, I followed the 5-2. So Michael Mosley wrote the book. Originally it was 500 calories, which was just so challenging when I'd go to yoga in the morning and then surf after that and then mm. work all day. I'd be just ravishingly hungry by the end of the day and need a nap in the middle of it. These days it's a little easier. He's up to the calorie count to 800 calories. So it's more sustainable. And so a protein smoothie in the morning and then at dinner be about 120 grams of, of organic chicken breast done in Kirk um, would cook it up in um, chili and turmeric and ginger and garlic and then that would be placed on a bed of. Uh, we'd have about fifty grams of brown rice with broccolini done in parsley with parsley uh, in lemon juice and lemon zest.
0: You got it's my really mouth yum. watering, Lane.
1: I know. It's like <laughs> we've been eating this same meal for six years, and we're still not sick of it. We love it. Love it. So, yeah. It's really
0: the- healthy. The fasting aspect is, like you were saying there, if your husband's 61 and his blood results are getting better and he's feeling better, I'm not surprised. That's a lot of the results that we get in the gut health, gut-brain connection programs that we do. And we yeah. had – I do work with Anthony Minicello in some well-being programs and we had him on here telling his story of how he helped heal his injuries and intermittent fasting was a massive part of that. And then also wow. the clean eating and yes. results that we get with people. It's just – it's amazing. I do it. Almost like, probably four or five days a week, I'll do the, I don't eat breakfast and won't eat it till lunchtime. After so, having like a 16 hour form. fast,
1: is that Yeah.
0: That? Yeah. But I, I must admit, sometimes I'll have a bulletproof coffee. So I've got uh-huh. the fats in there. So it doesn't trigger <laughs> it out of uh, like a ketotic state, but it's not a true yes. water only fast. And yes. some days I'll still have bone broth um, for the nutritional aspects and the essential amino acids. And so it's more like what you're saying there with the, the calorie restriction and the mm. clearing aspect there. But it's, yeah, it's just such a good way and it makes sense. And when people try it and they get used to it, they realize, i talking about fear, I used to be afraid of being hungry. That's why I would eat hungry. <laughs> <Really? much. laughs> yes. I didn't, I didn't realize for a long time. I just thought I had a high metabolism, but I was afraid I would eat all the time. And one day I realized I don't actually know what it feels like to be hungry. I've got no how idea you, how I do is eat. How did
1: you become aware of the fear? Uh,
0: well, it wasn't until later working with functional medicine practitioners, starting intermittent fasting and just facing that. When, once uh, intermittent fasting, hang on, that means I don't eat for how long? I don't know if I can do that. And then I realized, <laughs> yeah. oh, I've never actually questioned if I can go longer than three hours without food. This is ridiculous. <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah. So that yeah. was how I became aware of it. But you mentioned there too, your husband. So, I think it's really interesting with relationships. Does he have the same perception and, and beliefs of the world that you do?
1: We do share very similar beliefs. Yes. He, uh, he was one of the, the people that introduced me to Louise Hay. Mm. And, uh, and then he introduced me to this classic book called ET 101 um, and Bringers of the dawn. And, yeah, he has, he has a lot of different kind of spiritual beliefs around how we all got here and how connected we all are. Um, but then he goes into unconscious moments where he <laughs> indulges in things that I know don't work for him, but it doesn't matter. Uh, the the <laughs> is, human you know, he is a, The human experience, exactly. But, yes, we do share a lot of those kind of beliefs. But he's not as, um, he's not as focused on, on saving the world and transforming people as I am so he, uh, he and he's also a really great devil's advocate he likes to challenge me I
0: love it We're, and so you obviously are focused on saving the world which mm. leads me into uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about the Lane Beachley Foundation so what it is why you kicked it off and where it's at now
1: So my foundation, I started 16 years ago now, 2003, I launched it, and it uh, was focused on providing the financial and moral support for young girls and women to achieve their dreams in life. And it all stemmed from hindsight. I'd just won my fifth world title and one of my mates said, why don't you start your own foundation? I said, why would I do that? He said, because no other female athlete has. I went, that's good enough for me. Okay, I'll do it. (laughs) And I decided to focus on the things that I wish I had, and because basically he said, "Look, you you name it, tell me what it stands for, tell me what it does and, and we'll get the support for it. So I went out, I went home and I started brainstorming on there, why did I want to quit so many times? And it was all because when you're number two in the world, everyone tells you you're amazing, but no one backs it up with any kind of significant support. And I really needed financial support when I was number two in the world. Actually, I needed it when I was number one, but <laughs> we <laughs> won't go there. So I decided to start a foundation that really focused on supporting women on their way up, not waiting for them to achieve and prove to me that they're deserving of support, but having the courage to ask for help and then uh, surrounding themselves with like-minded women. And not just in sport, but music, science, business, culture, arts, environment, academia. And so over 15 years, I've granted almost a million dollars in scholarships to over 500 girls from around Australia in a such a broad cross section of pursuits. And so it was incredibly rewarding come, uh, end of 2018. We just were struggling. It's gone. It had left, it stopped being fun It stopped lighting me up and it had gone into struggle mode. And, and I know when I'm in struggle mode or survival mode, it's no fun and it mm-hmm. stopped being fun. So I decided to close it down and, uh, and in the end, I've kind of handed the baton per se over to these five women who have very community-focused pursuits. And I've given them basically whatever was left in the bank. I think I gave them – normally I'd give girls a three or $4,000 scholarship. And then these final girls, I gave them about a $15,000 scholarship. And uh, I said basically, do me proud. <laughs> <laughs> Keep the dream alive. Go after it. Um, and I believe in you. So essentially, aim for the stars was this, was basically saying to every girl around Australia, "I see you, I hear you, I believe in you. Here's some cash. Here's my words of encouragement and support. Here's a mentor for 12 months. Mm. Go after your dream. If you achieve it, great. If not, at least we did your best. You've done your best."
0: Beautiful. And you said it wasn't really lighting you up anymore. What is it that lights you up the most these days? Would and most to talk about and do. Where where do you believe your best value is expressed? Also,
1: so you can tell, I light up when I start talking about mindset. Mm. I really love helping people define their mindsets and master their mindsets. Uh, I did. A, I hosted a public workshop uh, earlier in twenty nineteen that where it was called Evolve, and, and it was an acronym. It stands for Energy, Values obstacles, limitations, vision, and empathy. And we basically covered off all of those topics. It was a little bit too much content for one day, (laughs) Uh, but it had a, a really transformational effect on everybody in the room. So my why is awakening people awakens me. That's why I do what I do. That's why I get up in the morning. That's why I want to continue learning. That's why I want to continue evolving and transforming because the more I learn, the more I can teach. And we all teach what we need to learn ourselves anyway. So that's why I created this Awake to Evolve concept because I really want to lift human consciousness. I really want to awaken the human spirit. I really want to help people live their best lives. And I know there's a lot of people out there doing it and I'm doing it through lived experience. That's what lights me up.
0: Did it light you up enough for it to continue? Is the Evolve model now something that you want to continue on with or
1: are continuing with? Similar to you had an awakening where you realized you had a fear of hungry, being hungry. I have a fear of having to work too hard. (laughs) (laughs) One of my fundamental, one of my values, one of my driving principles is freedom. Um, authenticity and freedom so I, I only do things that really light me up and excite me and evolve does light me up but it was just it took an immense amount of work and it kind of scared me a little bit <laughs> and uh, and now I have to get out of this um, ambivalent avoidance stage and just step in and own it and, and and that's about also finding the right people it's almost like I go back into the mentality that I had in 1997 which was the year before I won my first world title I was number two in the world with a bullet in my hand and I was really to give up because it all seemed too hard. I was invested in struggle. So I've got to stay out of that survival mode. And the one thing that got me out of that and got me past it was having conversations, meaningful, connected conversations with the right people who could offer me these sage advice. And, uh, and having people who I refer to as my honesty barometers in my corner who hold me accountable, keep me moving forward, asking me the right questions, provide me with the right amount of support.
0: I was going to ask you how you decide what to say yes and no to but I think you just answered it there essentially is it if it's in alignment with your freedom and your authenticity and it's it's not you operating from the the fear of um, hang on what how do you put it with the the um, I forgot the wording that you use there but uh, oh fear if of the deeply invested in struggle. So when you've been deeply invested yes. in struggle, that's, a, that's obviously something that you'd say no to to continue.
1: Yes. So it's interesting watching a lot of athletes transition out of their sports and even anyone actually, anyone that's done something for a long period of time and committed themselves wholeheartedly, whether you've been a CEO, a nurse, a doctor, a, a sports person, Uh, a photographer, you know, when you stop doing what you're, even a politician, you know, I I talked to John Howard about how long did it take for him to transition away from politics and he said it took him a couple of years to get comfortable with the idea of of no longer being PM. So because there's so much wrapped up in our job titles and, and our work, Uh, We we become very easily defined by it. And then when we lose that sense of definition and identity, all of a sudden, we lose our sense of self-worth and sense of direction. And I did that when I retired. So then I started saying yes to everything and everyone. And so then I started losing my sense of self. I started giving everything to everybody and, and was never really feeling my own cup up. And what that looks like is that you give the best of yourself to everyone who, who doesn't know you and you bring the worst of yourself home to the people that love you and you expect them to cop it, expect mm. them to tolerate it. So I realized after a little bit of time that once again, I looked in the mirror and didn't like what I saw and didn't like how I felt. So I decided I needed to make a, a, a decision around how I make decisions. And I went and saw a mentor and she gave me a really great decision-making tool which is if it lights you up, it's a hell yeah. And if it doesn't, it's a no.
0: It's a what (laughs) no. I've heard you say it before. You're allowed to swear on this one.
1: Am I? Okay. So if it it fills you with a sense of excitement and curiosity and it really makes you excited, before before the mind gets involved because it's the gut where the true joy lies and then the head will go, no, 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 no. (laughs) <laughs> wait you're not smart enough you're not you're not good enough you're not tall enough you don't have the time wait no before that all happens in, in your gut when you're like oh that feels like I'm a little bit nervous and excited about that it's a hell yeah in the event that the same opportunity is presented to you and your mind's like oh should. Sure, I could I would I've got the time why not oh you know maybe I, I don't know it could lead to something it's a fuck no <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's a lot clearer.
1: Yeah. That's, that's how I make my decisions to that. Given that that's how you make your
0: decisions, I'm very honored to have you on this podcast.
1: Yeah. Well, you, (laughs) you, you you weren't a, you weren't a fuck. No, you weren't (laughs) a hell yeah at first either. Only because I'd just done about 17 of them, but (laughs) but you weren't a fuck. No. So you passed, you got through the gate.
0: (laughs) Oh, brilliant. (laughs) Now you, there
1: are, there are a couple of anomalies and that's why I brought that, example up there's always going to be i find there's about four or five anomalies throughout the year where my pa you know she'll email me something and go this is what they want and this is how it's going to work and basically is it a hell yeah or fuck no and i sometimes it's a fuck no thanks and then a majority of times like hell yeah let's do this and then it's mm, it's not a hell yeah it's not a fuck no so i'm just gonna do it ah
0: <laughs> so if it's an in-betweener it's a yes
1: yes majority of the time
0: because you're so confident in your gut will tell you when it's a fuck no. Yes. Mm. Love it. All right. I've got a few quick questions before we wrap up and okay. I'm going to give you some time to get back out in the surf.
1: <laughs> <laughs> my time there is done.
0: <laughs> For today. Wait
1: till t- it'll have to wait till tomorrow. <laughs> I had my, I had my half hour of power. I was pretty really happy with that.
0: Excellent. What's three key take-homes that you want to leave with the listeners today from, from your life experiences and your beliefs?
1: Define how you want to feel, not what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Ask, and, it, and especially when it comes to your kids, don't ask them what they're going to be when they grow up. Ask them how they're going to contribute because then that'll be, that'll be conditioned through feeling versus thinking. Then the second piece is to just surround yourself with what I refer to as a dream team. So people who are honest with you, bring the best out in you, elevate you, celebrate you, console you, um, have empathy and are consistent with you. That's your dream team. Mm. The the dream thieves are the ones that tell you, question you, doubt you, criticize you, judge you and tell you you're never going to make it. Welcome to Manly. (laughs) Come surfing with me and I'll introduce you to all my dream things. (laughs) And then finally, once you've identified how you want to feel and who you want to have around you, then you've got to be your own accountability partner by taking action daily that's going to get you closer to either one of those two things. But how you want to feel essentially is the vision piece. And your vision is, uh, is... a preview of the life that you are destined to live. So how do you want to feel when you live your life?
0: Would you suggest that people label those feelings? Would you? Absolutely. Yeah. And express and feel. What
1: if they, yeah. Because if you don't, see, I'm not a psychologist and I've never studied psychology. And I've never been a big supporter of psychology per se because of my reticence to create labels. However, if they're if they're value-driven and they're anchored in congruency, then they're a healthy label to have.
0: Absolutely.
1: So. If we go back to that golden circle I was referring to with James Clear and I talk about identity, if you, are, if you are an injured person and you identify yourself as someone who has this injury, mm-hmm. then that becomes your label and your hook to hang it on. So one of the things I learned when I had this neck injury and I, I wanted to come back and surf again without pain, I stopped saying I have an injury in my C5, C6 neck injury, neck region. I stopped saying I have a disc herniation because I'm now labeling myself as someone who is injured. Mm -hmm. And I started saying I just have a challenge in my neck. And I, I would encourage people to explore that and how they feel, like sit with it. If you're currently dealing with an injury, say to yourself, say, for example, you've got a knee injury and I'd say, and so most of us would say, I've got a broken knee or, you know, I've got a torn medial or I've, I've just had a knee reconstruction because I tore my medial. And the amount of energy that goes into that, like sit with that and determine how you feel in that. Mm. How does that make you feel sitting with that? versus looking at your knee and saying, yeah, I have a bit of a challenge with my knee right now. How does that feel?
0: Shifting the language, shifting the mindset, shifting the feeling.
1: Exactly. Shift in
0: the shifting the outcome. Shifting
1: the language, shifting the mindset, shifting the feeling, shifting the outcome.
0: Mm. Super powerful. Yeah. Lane, where That's we, how I roll. Where, where's <laughs> the best place for people to follow you? Is it social media? Jump on the website to find out more about Evolve and everything that you're up to. And then also,
1: yeah,
0: on my website. how can I and the listeners help you on your journey?
1: That's a bloody good question. That's a really challenging one to answer. <laughs> I've never been good at asking for help. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what
0: if I said, how can I and the listeners enhance yes. and optimize your journey?
1: Um, I really don't know. You could.
0: How do we support your belief and your drive to impact the world?
1: Mm. Well, when I start rolling out these workshops, you can attend them um, and just engage with me and challenge me
0: brilliant and they'll find all that on the website to be able to engage and challenge and connect yes is there anything you would like to ask me
1: oh my goodness um when i'm doing my podcast can i interview you
0: hell yeah (laughs) i had to just listen to the gut then there was no fuck no sleeping in so it's a hell yeah (laughs)
1: thank you (laughs) um yeah i mean you've obviously got a wealth of knowledge and i'm i'm really grateful that you're taking the time to share that with the world because it's we're all about impacting lives and helping people find their truth and do what's right for them we're literally shortcutting the the learning curve so thank you for sharing your your gifts with the world
0: lane beachley you're a legend you're a genuinely authentically connected soul that's significantly impacting our world for the better keep shining your abundant light to the world my girl
1: oh that's very kind thank you brett i shall do so i'll make that commitment to you
0: (laughs) there you go If it's not a hell yeah, it's a fuck no. Remember Lane's take-homes. Define how you want to feel, not what you want to do. Surround yourself with a dream team, not dream thieves. And be your own accountability partner by taking action daily towards your goals, visions, and values. Make sure you follow Lane online at lanebeachley.com and on there you'll find all of her social media tags and you can read more about the events that she was speaking about that you can attend in person. Also, remember if you're keen to improve your physical, mental and emotional well-being, you can jump online and check out all my different online programs, one-on-one coaching and also reach out if your organization would like to host me for a workshop to get some uh, results and experiences like what Dave mentioned in the intro. You can check it all out at yourlifeofimpact.com And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact.